listening to WLPN, 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jeremy Lacero, and this is the Sunday, May 2nd, 2021 edition of Labor Express. Happy day after May Day to all. I hope all of you had an enjoyable May Day yesterday and participated in the holiday in one form or another. There was not enough time to report on yesterday's events in Chicago for tonight's program, but we'll certainly discuss May Day briefly in my interview with Jorge Mujica of Arise Chicago Workers Center, who has been one of the main organizers of Chicago's May Day marches since 2006. My interview with Jorge is wide-ranging. We discuss immigrant workers' victory over the dreaded no-match letters. We discuss the Secure Jobs Act being considered in the Illinois Senate. And we discuss President Biden's first 100 days. Later in the program, we'll hear about the root causes of migration from Central America from Alianza Americas. But first, we have this week's Labor News update from our friends at Radio Labor in Canada. In this edition of Solidarity News, they discuss the origins of the other holiday that was marked this past week, Workers' Memorial Day, as well as Biden's address to the nation last week. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, April 30th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. April 28th is the International Day of Mourning, a day set aside to remember workers who have died on the job. It is also known as the World Day for Safety and Health at Work and other names. The day is especially relevant now because of the thousands of workers who have died because of the pandemic. Most people think that the day was started by the United Nations or some government or an NGO, but the truth is much more interesting. The International Day of Mourning was started by a little health and safety committee of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, CUPE. I talked to Anthony Pezzino about how the day was started. Mr. Pezzino was a health and safety officer at CUPE at the time. This interview first ran in Radio Labor's April 28th broadcast in 2013. It started by me asking Mr. Pezzino how and when the project first began. The day, uh, April 28th, a day of morning, actually first started as a recommendation of our National Health and Safety Committee, uh, made up of uh, rank-and-file members from across Canada. And uh, they recommended the creation of a day to remember workers who were killed or injured on the job in uh, 1984. And then what happened? Well, what happened after that was uh, was great. It's really interesting. The uh, Canadian uh, Labour Congress uh, and uh, some affiliated unions quickly adopted the day uh, across Canada. That was around uh, 1984. And then what followed was uh, 1989. The uh, American labor movement uh, observed their very first uh, Workers' Memorial Day back then. The, the Canadian government in 1991 declared that April 28th of each year should be a day of remembrance for workers killed or injured at work. And uh, there is actually federal legislation to that effect. Are there many international organizations which have adopted the day? Many, many international organizations. The day has really grown to the point where uh, many countries, I would say uh, more than 60 countries around the world, observe April 28th. So workers and many communities gather to remember um, workers on, on April 28th. You must be very proud of the work that's been done. Where can people find out more information about the day? There's a, there's a website, uh, hazards.org, who tracks the worldwide uh, attention that April 28th gets. 
And uh, there's a country-by-country listing of all the activities. I think it's absolutely amazing. And you're right. We should be absolutely proud. In his inaugural speech to the U.S. Congress, President Joe Biden laid out an ambitious plan to create jobs, especially for blue-collar workers, and allow thousands more workers to join a union. He talked about the kind of jobs his plan would create. Now, I know some of you at home are wondering whether these jobs are for you. So many of you, so many of the folks I grew up with, feel left behind, forgotten, in an economy that's so rapidly changing. It's frightening. I want to speak directly to you, because you think about it. That's what people are most worried about. Can I fit in? Independent experts estimate the American jobs plan will add millions of jobs and trillions of dollars to economic growth in the years to come. It is is an eight-year program. These are good-paying jobs that can't be outsourced. Nearly 90% of the infrastructure jobs created in the American Jobs Plan do not require a college degree. 75% don't require an associate's degree. The American Jobs Plan is a blue-collar blueprint to build America. That's what it is. And I recognize this something I've always said in this chamber and the other. Good guys and women on Wall Street, but Wall Street didn't build this country. The middle class built the country, and unions built the middle class. So that's why I'm calling on Congress to pass Protect the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, and send it to my desk so we can support the right to unionize. And by the way, while you're thinking about sending things to my desk, (laughs) let's raise the minimum wage to $15. No one working 40 hours a week, no one working 40 hours a week should live below the poverty line. We need to ensure greater equity and opportunity for women. And while we're doing this, let's get the Paycheck Fairness Act to my desk as well. Equal pay. It's been much too long. The Protect the Right to Organize legislation, known as the PRO Act, which Mr. Biden mentioned in his speech, will help thousands of Americans join a union. I talked to Richard Bensinger about the PRO Act. Mr. Bensinger is a former director of organizing for the AFL-CIO Labor Federation in the United States. I asked him to describe the PRO Act. Well, the PRO Act is a sweeping labor law reform agenda that would, you know, give more power to workers that want to organize unions. What it is, it has a lot of provisions, but some of the most important ones are it would eliminate so-called right-to-work or right-to-work for less laws where where the union has to represent everybody, but not everyone has to be a member. It's just designed to weaken unions. It would impose much stricter penalties when employers do break the law and the right of private action by individuals to sue companies, much more stiff fines for firings and breaking U.S. labor law. It would abolish the right of a company like Amazon 
to have mandatory, what we call captive audience meetings, where they can force people to come in and listen. And even more effective are all the one-on-one meetings that Amazon does, where they just bend people's arm. They can be friendly. They can be threatening. You know, and all this is legal. The current, you know, their implicit threats are allowed under laws in both Canada and the United States. And so, but under the PRO Act, you wouldn't be allowed to have these meetings. And um, it would really create a more level playing field because there's no other election in society where one side can order people to come in. If you don't come to the meeting, they can fire you because you're refusing to come to the meeting. Um, the, the other things they would establish things like first contract arbitration. It would make it so that independent contractors can bargain in the states. There's been a lot of attempt by the rideshare industry and Instacart and other people lobbying heavily to exclude millions of gig workers. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radiolabor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. big thank you to Mark Belanger and Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada, for allowing us to broadcast their segments regularly here on Labor Express. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. Jorge Mujica, an organizer with the Ride Chicago Workers Center, has been a regular guest here on Labor Express Radio, going back to the massive immigrants' rights mega-marches that he was a key organizer for in 2006. I almost always invite Jorge on the program when a ride Chicago has some new big announcements. There were two exciting developments in the past couple weeks I was eager to discuss with Jorge. The first was the announcement that after years of terrorizing immigrant workers with their no-match letters, the Social Security Administration would stop issuing these letters, which often become tools in employers' hands to exploit their workers. Another exciting development was the Illinois Senate taking up the discussion of the Secure Jobs Act, Senate Bill 2332, which would end at-will employment in Illinois. I was also curious to hear Jorge's view of Biden's first 100 days in office, given his leading role as an immigrants' rights activist for two decades. We start off by discussing the no-match letters. On this no-match letter issue, this has been a long-standing issue. I remember way back when I was interviewing you when you were working for UE for a a short period there um, with this no-match letter hotline. That was kind of in the early days of of the whole no-match letter crisis. Can you start off by explaining to people again what the no-match letters are and what the concern is there? Uh, Yes, sure. The no-match letters are a failed attempt by the Social Security Administration to fix its own database. According to the Social Security Administration, they have at least 18 million mistakes in their database. And mistakes may be, you know, very simple things like uh, a woman who gets married and, uh, you know, uses the husband's name, last name, and she doesn't report it to the IRS, that's going to create a mismatch, a mistake. The other way around, a woman who 
divorces and uh, starts using again her name, mating name, and doesn't report it to the IRS. That's going to generate a mismatch. Any mistake in writing your date of birth, your birthday, uh, anything like that, you know, for instance, in Spanish, we always put the number of the day first and then the number of the month second. So instead of writing four seven, you write seven four. That's going to generate a mistake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the social security says, well, we receive a ton of money uh, for incorrect accounts and we want to correct it. That's fine and dandy. Good intention. The problem is that they send the notice to the employer that there is a problem. And the employer immediately assumes that if this person is an immigrant, then that's going to be undocumented and they start firing people. Or some you know, employers uh, keep the letters and they use them one or two or three years later when the workers start organizing, for instance, in a union tribe. All of a sudden, they pull out this letter. Oh, by the way, you have a problem with social security, so I have to lay you off, etc. So the, the 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 intention of the social security is good. The application of it is incredibly bad. So in 2009, we fought against this. We convinced the administration that it was a stupid way to try to correct it. They suspended them. But in 2019, the, the Donald Trump administration brought back the Social Security no much letters, uh, knowing that it didn't work, knowing that only 1% to 2% of the mistakes uh, got corrected with no much letters. They sent almost a million letters in 2019. So we started fighting back. We... Uh, you know, we want a small thing, a correction in the letter that originally gave employers 60 days to make corrections, although the manual of the Social Security Administration clearly states that you have three years, three months, and 15 days to make any correction in the, in, in the database. Uh, so we won that in 2019. But then again, at the end of last year, you know, pandemic year, the Social Security Administration in December sent again another wave of no match letters. And, uh, well, what we did it was to try with this new administration to, to get rid of them. And they finally paid attention. And the Social Security Administration just uh, announced last week that they are not going to use any more no match letters because they are ridiculously inefficient. And it's costly, you know, to send one million letters over the mail. And it creates more confusion than it fixes problems. So we finally, at least for the time being, for the following three years, we hope, or seven years, uh, we are not going to see any more no much letters. And that's uh, obviously a huge relief to the immigrant community. And it's also, I'm sure... Uh, a huge relief to organizations uh, like Arise Chicago or uh, others that have uh, been trying to fight on behalf of immigrants on this front, because I know there were so many uh, cases where the no match letters became 
uh, one of the the key elements of of what of the of what was going on that you pointed out the fact that they're being used in uh, against workers when they try to organize. Um, I know oftentimes just the no match letter itself is what the you know workers would come to you about and say, hey, our company you know received these and now they're you know, letting people go or whatever. And then you were forced to kind of have to educate people about what the no match letter really is, both the employers and the workers and, and organize on their front. So this is, this is a huge thing kind of taken off both the shoulders of the immigrant community and those organizations that fight for them. That's right. Uh, I arrived Chicago since 2019 when the social security administration sent the first wave of letters, we have developed three editions of our toolkit against the no match letters. Because, you know, we issued the first one and then we won this victory about the 60-day uh, time limit stuff. And then again last year, uh, after December, when Social Security Administration sent uh, the, the, the last wave of no match, uh, we re-edited our toolkit. And now we are updating it, uh, telling people, you know, if the employer, uh, if your employer received a no match letter, let him know that Social Security Administration discarded them, that he doesn't have to do anything about it. So uh, it's, it's the fourth edition of our toolkit against the no match letters. Wow, that's interesting. You know, you you point out something too that's interesting that, that I hadn't considered, which is so it's good news that there will be no more no match letters going out, and that the uh, Social Security Administration is not. Using them in any way at this point to uh, um, you know verify somebody's status, but I can imagine that there are employers, like you said earlier, that received ones in the past that have them in a file cabinet somewhere that may still try to pull those out and scare workers at some point. Right, exactly, and that's why we we you know don't let the guard down. We are still informing people and letting them, letting them know that they shouldn't be. Uh, surprised, you know, by any no much later that the Social Security Administration ended them. So they, they shouldn't be considered valid at all. Well, that's good news. So that's definitely a victory. Um, and there's another issue that's come up uh, recently that I think is, well, we'll see if it's a victory or not, I guess, whether it passed or not, but at least the fact that it's even being considered as good, which is this Secure Jobs Act, I guess it's Senate Bill 2332. Can you talk a little bit about what that's about? Uh, yes, absolutely. The Secure Jobs Act is pretty much ending or an effort to end at-will employment in the state of Illinois. Uh, you know, that's that's uh, nationwide. That's, uh, that's how you work. Uh, pretty much only if you have a personal contract, and that only happens if you're an executive. Uh, everyone else works uh, in at-will at setting. Except, of course, also if you're a union member. But only 8% of all workers are union members. And so 92% of workers are pretty much uh, under an at-will uh, system. And what we want is the employer to have to justify exactly and to explain exactly why he or she is firing someone. So you're going to still fire people, of course, but you have to justify it. Forget about just, uh, you know, it's quarter to 12 and by noon I want you out of here and no explanation at all. In the state of Illinois, curiously enough, you have the right to request an explanation, but the employer doesn't have any obligation to give you that explanation. 
So we want to go a, a step further. You have to give an explanation. Uh, you have to, to say exactly why you are dismissing someone from your workplace. So that's the, the Secure Jobs Act. And that may sound at first like a small thing, but it really is a very significant change in labor law um, in the, this country. I mean, the, the whole issue of at-will employment is really at the heart of uh, the kind of disbalance of power that workers have with their employers. So this is really uh, a significant change in the law. It is, definitely. And uh, it also helps because, again, uh, you know, when you have union organizing drives, uh, you have employers dismissing people for, oh, you were late. Those are the only times they seem to try to explain why they are firing someone to prevent the National Labor Relations Board to find uh, in a case against them for retaliation. But they are retaliating. And so we want this, this uh, you know, uh, practices to stop. If you're going to fire someone, you will have to tell me uh, or tell the worker, you know, that, yes, I'm firing you because you got here late three days in a week. And that, according to our policy, uh, justifies your firing. Otherwise, you can't fire people just because. Right, right. Now, Obviously, we don't know what this final version of this bill will look like or even if it will pass at all, of course. Um, but given what's been proposed so far, would there be penalties then um, for the employer? And there would, the, would there be like a, a way for workers to file some kind of a legal case to, uh, against the employer under this act then? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Yes. Uh, the Department of Labor would be in charge of enforcing it, being a, a labor provision within the state of Illinois. Uh, and also, we are raising the question of the Department of Labor being able to assess fines and actually to collect, because so far the Department of Labor doesn't have any power to collect anything. You know, uh, when you bring up a case with the Department of Labor, they, the department may rule in your favor and the department may find the employer, but the department doesn't have any uh, collections uh, department, you know, uh, they they cannot go and collect from anyone anything. Uh, we have seen uh, cases of stolen wages where the department rules in your favor, but then they can collect and you can collect. So the employer just, you know, keeps uh, doing business as usual. Uh, and we want to fix that. We want the Department of Labor to be able to actually collect, you know. Right. It's interesting. This is, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the PRO Act here on the program already. And this is, you know, kind of part and parcel with that really uh, effort, both nationally now and on the state level, to make significant changes to, you know, labor law, to really put some teeth into it and to really, you know, move it a little bit further in the direction of workers' interests. Um, you, you talk about the fact of the, you know, the fact that the uh, companies in Illinois can largely avoid paying fines and so on. So it's, you know, these, these violations become a slap on the wrist. We've talked about with the PRO Act how, you know, oftentimes the violation, the the only uh, penalty is like putting up a poster basically saying, uh, oh, we did a wrong thing. We're sorry. <laughs> and that that itself takes oftentimes years before the case actually is won. So um, so both, you know, the PRO Act and, and uh, the Secure Jobs Act here at the state level are really about, uh, 
you know, we, we just have terrible labor law in this country, and this is about starting to try to push things in the right direction. That's yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, we go back to 1938, you know, uh, after the labor law was uh, sort of reversed in favor of employers. Uh, the first labor law, the original labor law, was pretty fair, but it only lasted two years. Uh, two years later, employers came back and uh, included, you know, foreign modifications to the labor law, and the 40 of them were favorable to employers. And that's where we are at, you know, so far. This is, uh, you know, 80 years later, and we have a labor law that seems more like a commerce law or an employer's law, but it doesn't have a lot of, uh, you know, very good rights for workers. Basically, the right to organize. That's the most important right you have. Other than that, minimum wage and overtime, and that's about it. And we want to correct that, definitely. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for People by Working People, my interview with Jorge Mujica of Arise Chicago Workers Center. The labor law that overturned the Wagner Act that Jorge was referring to when he discussed the PRO Act is actually the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, just to clarify. We need to take a brief station ID break. When we return, our conversation will turn to Jorge's assessment of President Biden's first 100 days in office, so make sure not to move that dial. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. In the second half of my conversation with Jorge Mujica of Arise Chicago Workers Center, our conversation turned to a discussion of Biden's first 100 days in office. Jorge has been one of Chicago's leading immigrants' rights activists for two decades, so I was especially interested to hear his assessment of Biden on the issue of immigration. Well, let's move on then to uh, the, the other topic that I wanted to, to talk to you about, which is we've, you know, we've reached the, uh, the first 100 days now of the Biden administration this week. Um, and it's, you know, time to kind of make an evaluation of, you know, at least the, the start of this administration, the direction they're going. Um, there's been a lot of praise given for things like, you know, um, the administration's responses to COVID and those kind of things. But I think um, the immigration issue has been much more contentious um, in how the administration has uh, um, uh uh, you know, affected uh, uh, the the issues of immigrants' rights and that kind of thing. Can you talk about, kind of give, give us your assessment of where you see the Biden administration on issues of immigration at this point? Well, actually, I'm going to tell you something. I'm gladly surprised uh, for the actions the, the Biden administration has taken. Uh, pretty much, the Biden administration has issued 90 different executive orders or administrative policy changes. Uh, pretty much reversing all but one or two of uh, the orders and administrative policies issued by the Donald Trump administration. That's not bad. This is pretty good. You know, uh, issues remain uh, how to receive people requesting asylum in the border and dealing, of course, with the flood of uh, uh, minors that are getting in the border, uh, stuff like that which is not minor, of course, uh, is big. But so far, you know, 90 actions in almost 100 days, that is not bad. Now, the big, big, big problem remains, of course, what to do about legalization of undocumented workers. And uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. And that's why we're marching uh, on May Day this year, because what we have seen is a good proposal 
pretty much the platform of Bernie Sanders on immigration. That's what the the Melendez proposal in Congress is, legalizing everyone, including the return of people deported in the last four years, etc. We have seen that very good proposal in Congress being uh, pretty much discarded and uh, parted into so many sections. You know, oh, it's impossible to approve legalization for all, so let's go for legalizing this group here and that group there, TPS, essential workers, agricultural workers, DACA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't like that. We believe that the most divided the, the, the issue gets, the less people will be legalized. And uh, and we we are not going for that. You know, we don't want to legalize five different groups, small groups. We want legalization for all. You know, if the pandemic uh, year has thought of something, is that most undocumented workers are essential workers. They have been exposing their lives for a whole year in the workplace because they can't get unemployment assistance or anything like that. So they kept working and they kept getting, uh, you know, the virus in the workplace and they kept dying. And uh, without them, this country wouldn't have been able to eat. You know, from the agricultural fields to transportation to food processing to supermarkets and many times to your own door, you know, for those who were working remotely, uh, these people brought you the food. Uh, these people brought you the, the, the comfort for you to work from home. And they have to be legalized. This is ridiculous to have, uh, you know, any undocumented workers still undocumented. Uh, we need to legalize them all. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's both um, frustrating. I mean, we saw this with the Obama administration, too, where, you know, when during the uh, the campaign, there was a promise that 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 uh, immigration reform would be one of the first things on the agenda. And then it never really happened. Uh, You know, I I think there's a feeling of deja vu right now, maybe with the Biden administration on this front. Of course, we have to acknowledge that the problem facing this administration, which the Obama administration didn't really have, is this uh, tight, uh, um, uh, you know, vote in the in the Senate where it's hard to imagine uh, immigration legislation getting through right now, not only because, you know, there's only 51 Democratic votes, but uh, we have Democrats like Joe Manchin and so on who, uh, you know, are more like Republicans most of the time than they are Democrats. So it, there's there's an understandableness, I guess, there, but it does seem frustrating that, you know, immigration reform always is talked about as one of the key priorities, and then it just seems to get put on the back burner. Uh, indeed, you know, and that's why it's got to happen in 2021, because in 2022, we get into the uh, midterm election policies, and it's going to be even harder to try to get the 50% plus one votes in the Senate. So it has to happen now. I mean, you have Munchin on one side and Bernie Sanders on the other one, who says, I, I promise you that if this gets into the budget reconciliation committee, I will approve it. I mean, we will pass it. Uh, but there's a very delicate balance. If Democrats lose a single senator in 2022, we can forget about any progressive politics for the next, uh, I don't know how many years. So we have to do it now. It's uh, the, the time is now, definitely. You know, and the the funny thing about it, too, is um, it's always presented 
at the congressional level and at the presidential level as if this is such a contentious issue and so it's hard to move forward. Yet every time you know they do a poll or they ask uh, voters, you know, how, where they are at on immigration reform, even you know voters that consider themselves Republicans or conservative say that they recognize the absolute need for immigration reform. So there's actually, I think, a pretty solid majority of people in the population who recognize the absolute need for immigration reform. It's just the politicians that seem to have more of a problem about it. That's right. That's right. Because whatever the, the public opinion says, there's still one munching guy, you know, that, <laughs> that doesn't want to vote in favor. And that's a big, big, big problem. And it's not solvable, I think, via elections. We are not going to be waiting another year uh, or, or maybe three years or maybe who knows how many years to replace Munchin. We have to force Munchin to do something, you know, to vote in favor, that's it, to forget about the threats, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I have always sustained, you know, that, that politicians do things when they wake up every day with a big headache saying, oh, my God, no, there's going to be another march. There's going to be another day without immigrants. You know, that's when they react and act. And that's what we have to do this year. We're starting on May Day, but it's not going to be the last thing we do. You know, we may keep marching and marching and, and declaring days without immigrants, hit them in the pocket. You know, no school, no shopping, no work. Uh, one day, two days, three days, maybe. Uh, and I think the community is ready now. We haven't seen this uh, level of interest since 2006, 2007, uh, because people realize that, that maybe we can do it in 2021 and that we have to do it in 2021. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I certainly agree with you, obviously, that mass mobilization is the key to making these things happen. Um, you know, I, I'm always critical of the labor movement after an election like this when they get a Democratic elected because they always seem to take this position of laying off the pressure after the election. And the excuse is kind of like, well, we've got to give them time. We've got to give them space to to do what they know they need to do or whatever. And I always feel like that's the exact wrong position to take. You've got to turn up the pressure after the election because it's only if you keep that pressure up that you're going to see actually any movement. And so that same argument, I think, applies to the immigrants' rights movement, right? Which is, this is the time to really put the pressure on. Completely right. I think one of the biggest mistakes of 2006, which it was an election year, and uh, it actually proves that you can do some stuff in, in election years. But I think that the biggest mistake was to say, today we march, tomorrow we vote. And so after some big marches, uh, every effort was dedicated to uh, voting, you know, let's march to the polls. Well, yeah, we did march to the polls. We elected a majority of Democrats to Congress. Two years later, we elected a Democrat to the White House and huge majority in both houses, and nothing happens. I don't think elections by themselves resolve problems. You know, they don't solve problems. They, they might help you by replacing some people in government, but they don't solve problems. If elections solve problems automatically, we wouldn't have problems because we vote every two years. So we have to keep the pressure, you know, in the streets and, and again, in the pockets of this economy. You know, we have the, the, the pandemic on our side in that sense, political sense, uh, you know, that, that, that it was more evident than ever that this immigrant population is what keeps the country running. 
So we have to make use of that political uh, fact. Absolutely. I I 100% agree with you. I think that can't be restated enough. Um, You mentioned uh, May Day. Um, Unfortunately, this program is going to air right after May Day, so um, we can't really use it to get the word out about May Day. But uh, regardless, I'd like you just to talk about, you know, what the plans are for this May Day. I know last year, I think things were, you know, kind of low ebb because of the the pandemic, obviously. Um, What what about this year? What are the plans? Well, this year we declared first a day without immigrants, uh, and they uh, we called everybody for a march. And I repeat, you know, the, the, the input from the community is that, yes, this is the year, this is what we have to do. And, uh, and again, May Day is just a start. You know, uh, after May, there's like uh, two more months of discussions in Congress, then they take a recess, and they come back in September, so we will have between September and December of this year to pass immigration reform. Uh, and what we want, again, is legalization for all, not for a group here and a group there and maybe one million here and maybe one million there. We, we have the urgency to, to legalize everyone this year. Um, in terms of the actual plans for me, you know, I know the, the perennial kind of um, – Kind of not not conflict, but but uh, uh, coordination, I guess. Issue always is that the the labor movement always wants to do their um, own particular celebration at the Haymarket uh, Monument, uh, and then the question is always, you know, how do we integrate this with the march and all that? Has that been an issue this year? Oh, it's it's an issue every year. You know, the the Illinois Historical Labor Historical Society, as much as we respect them. Uh, they they only want to do something by high market monument. Uh, we haven't seen a real interest from labor unions to participate in demonstrations since uh, 2007 and 2008. I think uh, that was the last time uh, union labor unions participated in the march. Uh, every year there's a celebration commemoration at high market, and they place a new plate, uh, a new plaque. Uh, at the monument, and that's fine and dandy, but but we need people marching in the streets, you know, not people uh, just commemorating a historic date. Uh, This is a fighting day. This is a day to fight. This is not a day to just commemorate something that happened uh, 140 years ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is frustrating to see that the unions haven't put more into the May Day marches in, in recent years. Um, I think that's the only way that, you know, we can uh, get back to those mega marches, you know, of uh, a decade ago and so on. Uh, so it's uh, um, it, that's that's frustrating. Ho- I'm hoping, you know, uh, now that the pandemic is, is starting to get under control, that maybe in the coming years, uh, there'll be less excuses uh, kind of for lack of a participation as well. I hope so. I hope so, definitely. Uh, we had to deal a little bit with that this year in the March because many people were saying, well, but what happens about the virus? Well, what happens is that, first of all, many people are getting vaccinated already, particularly essential workers. So, so much people already got the two doses of the vaccine. Uh, then uh, we double mask, you know, not only one, but we double mask. And third, we keep a respectable distance. Uh, we, we adopted the uh, European way to march, which is marching columns, uh, you know, keeping safe distance. Instead of a bunch of people all together in the middle of the street, we marched over the white lines and yellow lines on the pavement 
And uh, so the march is uh, pretty much extended that way. You know, instead of everybody concentrating in bunches, uh, we made uh, very long lines this year. That's uh, really interesting and, and, and quite smart because uh, obviously it's, you know, extremely helpful and important in terms of trying to keep down the possibility of spread of the virus. But also, I imagine it makes for quite a, a interesting, you know, spectacle to see kind of that kind of organization taking place. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can put 500 people in one block and single block uh, if you put them all together. But if you put them in lines, that, that same 500 people takes three blocks or four blocks. So it's, yeah, it's, it's an innovative, uh, even if it's old in Europe, I think, and in Asia. Uh, but for the United States, it's a pretty inno- innovative way to do things. It gives you visibility. It allows for people to count. You know, many people are so worried about how many people exactly went to the march. Okay, then you can count them, you know, <laughs> if they are in lines, uh, in lanes, uh, instead of just bunched up. So before we go, you know, whenever I have you uh, uh, on for an interview, I always like to do a little ca- uh, follow up with what's going on in terms of organizing uh, with Arise Chicago, because I know there's always, you know, workers reaching out to you with various uh uh, struggles in their workplace. And so there's almost always, you know, various organizing campaigns going on. Now, I realize oftentimes many of those campaigns are not public yet. And so you can't say too much about it. Um, but I'm just wondering if there's any any campaigns going on that you would like to say something about. Uh, well, the, the struggle continues, as the, the, the theme says, you know, the struggle continues. Uh, we are working with a bunch of people uh, in, in a whole bunch of places uh, whose employers are failing to observe uh, the, the, the necessary health measures. Uh, you know, uh, they, they are disobeying governor's orders, they are disobeying CDC orders, they are disobeying uh, OSHA guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so workers keep complaining about that. Of course, employers are still uh, stealing wages. <laughs> you know, that's a never-ending uh, pandemic is the other kind of pandemic in, in our society and particularly in our community. Uh, I can tell you this much. Uh, we will make it public and you will know in advance, uh, but we are ending a seven-year-old campaign to recover some stolen wages uh, for some car wash workers. And it's going to be uh, I can tell you that. We will tell you the story later the detailed story, but, but you know, it's, it's ridiculous that it may take seven years to recover stolen wages. For sure. And I know exactly what you're talking about. The whole car wash organizing, it, it's been going on for a long time now. And I'm really glad to hear that there's going to be a breakthrough on that front. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it will be the end. And, uh, and, and we hope that this, the end of this campaign, seven-year-old campaign, will help you with a public policy, some changes in the state of Illinois uh, regarding stolen wages too. Well, that's definitely really exciting. And and I, you're, you're absolutely right too that I think this last year, so much of the organizing in workplaces has been around the COVID issue. Um, it's really, I think, revealed once again, uh, the the power with which employers, uh, you know, control the lives of their workers and, and how hard it is for workers even to uh, get employers to, to follow the law. So uh, it's very revealing in that way. Yes, it is. I mean, uh, we, we promoted uh, health strikes. 
we call them, meaning, uh, you know, if, if uh, you're exposed to the COVID in the workplace, strike for health, you know, leave that place, go into quarantine, get tested, and then whoever is uh, healthy can come back. And whoever, you know, you discover in the process that is uh, uh, already infected with the virus shouldn't come back to the workplace. It's, it, it, it seems just... Uh, you know, common sense, but employers were not keeping up with any common sense at all during the last year. Right. Well, we're definitely going to reach out once we get that news about the uh, the victory in that seven-year car wash uh, workers campaign. So very excited to, to hear a little bit about that, and, and uh, we'll be following up on that for sure. Yes, by all means, we will let you know. I unfortunately forgot to ask Jorge about the ongoing detentions of asylum-seeking families and unaccompanied minors at the border, which is a much more problematic practice of the new administration. This is something I will have to address on future episodes. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Alianza Americas, formerly known as NALOC, is an immigrant-led organization whose mission is to create inclusive, equitable, and sustainable way of life for migrant communities living in the United States and across the Americas. We have had the executive director, Oscar Chacon, on the program many times in the past to discuss politics and social movements throughout the Americas, as well as issues of migration. Alianza recently organized a series of webinars on the root causes of migration in Central America. It is a wonderful series of discussions on the issue with multiple representatives of communities throughout the region, as well as activists here in the United States. I will provide a link to the entire series on the Labor Express Facebook page at laborexpress.org. The last webinar in the series was held last Thursday, and I thought I would provide you all a few short excerpts to give you a taste of what you can get out of the series. The voice in this first excerpt is that of Jacob Lesniewski of the Mennonite Central Committee in Guatemala. He discusses how in the case of Guatemala's indigenous communities, where he is based, though his analysis is true really of the whole region, there is a concern over the belief that the solution to Central America's problems is large-scale economic development. Though certainly the alleviation of poverty remains one of the region's most important goals, economic development, especially that driven by the U.S. and a neoliberal economic model, has actually resulted in more displacement of the region's most vulnerable. When you talk about why people leave territories that they and their families have been living in you know, for, for, for thousands of years, you start to think about how the social, economic, and political environment doesn't allow, especially young people, to sort of develop what we call here the proyecto de vida, right? I go to school, I get a credential, and I work in that career. You talk about um, disconnections, right? Sort of state-sponsored, public sector-driven disconnections from traditions, territories, and ancestral knowledge. And you have to talk about the sort of displacement that's generated by sort of neoliberal economic models and state-sponsored violence. I think this is where these this is where these mega proyectos these uh, come in, right? And I think I, I really want to highlight that, especially at the, at the end of a really robust and rich discussion of, of root causes, because the temptation is there to make these mega proyectos, the hydroelectrics, the mines, make those the driver of what the president of Guatemala has called Muros de Prosperidad, Walls of Prosperity. Again, he was not, uh, Vice President Harris was not particularly enthused with his, his characterization there. So, but sort of this idea that like the way you get people to not migrate is by creating sort of economic development like as that. And really the problem is that 
So you have these indigenous territories that are relatively rich in natural resources, especially water for hydroelectric products, but also for mining, land for sort of more um, sort of monocrop agriculture, agroecology, agroexport industries. And you have a context, right, for at least since the conquest of sort of taking land and taking resources away from the people who live near them, right, and whose communities have been sustained by them for centuries to sort of extract, right? We, when we talk about Guatemala in terms of its model, it's an extractive economic model, right? It's extracting the maximum amount of value from the resources they are there that are there for the really the minimum amount of people, what the economics literature calls rentier economies, right? Um, and I think th that what's happening is that these this this rise of mega proyectos exacerbates other forms of drivers of migration. So if climate change is a problem because it reduces the cultivability of land and because it, re it reduces the amount of rain, a mega project that dams up a river, right, or expansion of African palm, palm plantations does makes that worse, right? So it takes away more water resources for folks too. If a problem for youth is that they don't have the resources to to connect themselves to their parents and their grandparents' tradition because there isn't enough land, right? Mega projects and, and, and agro export um, agriculture take those resources away as well too. And the other problem is that this, this economic model generates, right, significant amounts of sort of macroeconomic numbers like GDP growth and, and, and things like that too, but isn't the kind of economic development that generates the kind of jobs that a, a young indigenous man or woman from a community can get their degree and then work in this business, right? They get their degree as a bookkeeper, they get their degree as a, what's called, and then work there too. So it's not generating these sort of um, life trajectories and proyectos de vida that allow people to stay in the places they want to stay in, right? And are sort of somewhat forced to leave because of that lack of opportunity. Um, and I know, again, I, I really appreciate sort of the, 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 the really in-depth way that that Alianza Americas and your, and your interlocutors have gone into some of these uh, root causes. And I know there's other factors, but I really wanted to focus on the, at least because the temptation is there. Like if we go to the website of you know, the Inter-American Development Bank, the first strategic pillar of the Alliance for Prosperity in Central America is the quote, uh, fostering the productive sector with the quote, promotion of strategic sectors and energy as key elements, right? And that actually makes, makes us a little nervous, right? Because because if on the one hand, you're doing really important things, I think Yolanda was spot on to say a lot of what Vice President Harris has talked about is, is amazing, right? Stuff that we'd really like to see to afford, uh, transitional justice and civil society. But if you're doing that on the one hand, on the other hand, you're sort of kicking out the legs of sort of the productive capacity of these communities, then you're sort of doing one thing with one hand and the other hand. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. The next voice from the Alianza Americas webinar of Root Causes of Migration is Marco Perez Neverete of the Heinrich Boyle Stiftung Foundation in El Salvador. Marco has the same concerns about neoliberal-driven economic development as Jacob and also raises the vulnerability of Central America to natural disasters in the era of climate change. Uh, unfortunately, the, we didn't have yet the impacts that Honduras, Nicaragua, and even Guatemala already had by, by the hurricanes last year. And that's a very important thing for me to start with because uh, a single storm or a hurricane uh, like the ones uh, Eta and Iota uh, in 2020 uh, impacting El Salvador, that will be a very big problem. 
And uh, I just would like to start with that because we were lucky last year. Uh, that was that there was no comparison of the capacities of uh, Honduras and Nicaragua as uh, big countries in Central American terms uh, to deal with this situation. And obviously we have already the, the numbers of the caravan from Honduras that left uh, after these uh, hurricanes. And basically we're talking about 10,000 people. And um, I will say that um, my main concern in El Salvador will be three topics. The first one is obviously um, vulnerability. I think the world and the regions like Central America are very vulnerable. And uh, I think uh, uh, this has to do with uh, survival, at least in Central America, survival based on historical challenges. Uh, independently of the messages from populist governments or fake news from economic think tanks, etc. First of all, I think we need to ensure as part of the urgent solutions, not humanitarian uh, assistance, because humanitarian assistance is only promoting the same cycle over and over. I think, uh, first of all, we need to ensure the protection of the territory and the environment. There is no country uh, without an ecological base. At least in Central America, as, uh, as uh, the participants already said, the mining projects, the extraction of minerals are still a core problem in our agenda. Uh, because basically our natural resources are more than limited. And that's not only Central America, that's the whole world. And well, this protection is related to end of poverty through a sustainable agriculture and water resources protection and life underwater, every single um, goal that even the UN is promoting as examples of linkage between measures. Um, the other thing is, uh, I, I think, it has to do with the protection of human rights and good governance practices. In Central American countries, the advance of authoritarianism is leading us to repeat all cycles that promoted the, the main conflicts and even uh, wars uh, like in Guatemala and El Salvador four years ago. If states promote inequality with unviable economic models in countries without production capacity, but in exploited conditions, nothing will change. This is something that it's even logical, but, but still maybe, maybe we need to show it more than we already did. And I think the only thing that will change will be in these transitions, how an elite group in turn uh, will be a new parasite of an inactive majority due to the lack of organization or even symbolic repression. You're listening to Labor Express, Radio Chicago's only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. In this last brief excerpt from Alianza America's webinar on the root causes of migration from Central America, we hear from Yolanda Gonzalez of Radio Progreso in Honduras. Yolanda talks about the authoritarian regime that has controlled Honduran politics for over a decade now and how their relationship with drug trafficking gangs has created a situation of out-of-control violence that the U.S. has until now not recognized in their dealings with the Honduran government. And the third one, institutional crisis of the rule of law. Public institutions are no longer public. And precisely the second point I would like to share has to do with this institutional crisis. Honduras has an authoritarian regime 
and the state at all levels has been captured by drug trafficking and corruption networks. Especially since 2009, Honduras leaves a situation of democratic abnormality. Donor countries and international organizations have not wanted to see this reality and have insisted in applying measures that can be adequate in a situation of democratic normality, but not in the current situation, which is exceptional. That's why the failure of the huge economic investment of the international community, US administration as well, to try to strengthen democratic institutions in this country. In this sense, we are very hopeful with the introduction of the Honduras Human Rights and Anti-Corruption Act of 2021, the Merkley Act, since this legislation in the United States, since this legislation lays out a comprehensive framework for combating corruption, impunity, and human rights violations in Honduras, and shines a spotlight on glaring problems that have too often been excused by US administration. We believe that this is an excellent first step, and we trust that it will not remain just as a proposal, but it will be perhaps approved and implemented. I wish we had time to air more of this series, but you can now view the videos at a link I have up at laborexpress.org. I might include more excerpts in upcoming episodes of the program. There's just so much more I think our listeners should hear. But that's all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Community for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio and Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpinradio.com for more Labor Express. <laughs>